When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. EU Confidential will get started right after this message. Today's episode is presented by Goldman Sachs. Goldman Sachs believes that when women lead, everything changes. Because in today's world, gender equality is an economic imperative and a catalyst for long-term growth. Learn more at gs.com slash lead. I thank Greece for being our European Aspida in these times. Translate Aspida as shield. Welcome to EU Confidential. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor in Brussels, and you just heard European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen on a visit to Greece's border with Turkey this week. She was there with European Council President Charles Michel and the President of the European Parliament, David Sassoli, to show solidarity with Greece and definitely not to take questions from reporters. The trio held a press conference without letting the press do any pressing. It does feel like the EU has shifted into crisis mode this week with the humanitarian crisis in Syria becoming a migration crisis for the EU. And then there's the coronavirus with the EU launching a response team, governments announcing various emergency measures and the UK unveiling its own action plan. So let's talk about those stories and what Super Tuesday in the US Democratic primaries might mean for Europe with our podcast panel. Reem Montaz in Paris. Hi, Reem. Bonjour. Uh, Annabelle Dixon's in London. Hi, Annabelle. Hello. And Matt Karnichnik is on a stakeout in Berlin. Hi, Matt. Guten Abend. Guten Abend, yeah. Uh, we have the, the joy, which you don't have as a listener, of, of, of seeing everyone. And we can see Matt in his car, such as his commitment to the, uh, to the podcast that he's pulled over to join us. I'm on a hot story. Okay, wow. Can't, can't wait to see it. Uh, probably not during the day, right? J- judging by your normal filing times. <laughs> So anyway, uh, let's uh, get started with migration, which suddenly uh, seems to have come back, if you like, to to haunt the EU. It's a problem or a challenge they didn't manage to really rise to uh, last time as as an organisation uh, anyway. And this is a topic, you know, we, we talked about last week, uh, Syria, and of course things escalated there after uh, we spoke and then we had uh, uh, Turkish President Erdogan basically saying the borders are open now. If refugees want to go to Europe, we're not going to stop them. And uh, we've seen a, an escalation at, on the border, particularly with, with Greece. Uh, Matt, what do you make of it? Do you have kind of deja vu from last time or is it different this time? Well, it does seem to be the same, but different, if if you know what I mean. On, on, on the one hand, you know, it's it's clearly disgusting to see what uh, Erdogan is doing here by, by using people as kind of a bargaining chip in this, you know, kind of 
chess game he has going on with 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 Europe on the one hand and you know over what's going on in Syria on the other but on on the other hand you know one has to acknowledge from the European side that you know he's been complaining about the the situation there for quite some time Turkey has taken in almost 4 million refugees which is vastly more than the rest of the EU combined and they haven't really thought through how they're going to handle the refugee situation in Europe now once the the current deal the 2016 deal uh, effectively runs out or at least that that pot of money that's in there uh, is 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 no longer available so i i think that you know this is one of those situations where europe was hoping this problem would go away it, and and now it's you know we're again in crisis mode and i thought the kind of greatest symbol of this uh fact so far was was this picture that circulated around twitter yesterday uh, of von der Leyen sitting in the the back seat of a of a car or a truck with uh, Boyko Borisov, the prime minister of Bulgaria, driving her and Michel, um, you know, around the border region of of Bulgaria. And there, there's a lot of sort of symbolism in in that picture. Not only the fact that she's sitting in the back seat. Yeah, well, as uh, some people may have seen, uh, I tweeted, I wasn't sure about this new version of Carpool Karaoke. Um, but uh, it's certainly, as ever with uh, Borisov, who is a great uh, servant to EU transparency, gave us a glimpse behind the scenes that we otherwise uh, don't normally get. Reem, what do you make of it all? I mean, what can one say in front of this uh, spectacle? Does it really take Erdogan uh, in engaging in this kind of blackmail to get some kind of reaction from the EU. Uh, you know, if you were an alien just arriving on Earth, you'd be forgiven uh, for thinking that perhaps the war in Idlib had just started about two weeks ago. Why? Why did it take Erdogan resorting to this kind of measure to finally hear all sorts of ideas from German leaders and Dutch leaders? And the Dutch are talking about a no-fly zone, but, you know, only the Assad Air Force. Now, let's not talk about Russia Let's not talk about the Russian Air Force uh, not only enabling the Assad uh, Air Force, but also carrying out their own bombing against civilians and hospitals in Idlib. Uh, you know, the German Chancellor and the German Defense Minister talking about some sort of security zone. But please don't take it to mean the technical sense of the word, because God forbid that would mean actually having to engage, you know, practically in putting that uh, in, in place. It's a security zone without security. Is what they're talking. Yeah, that seems about. to be it. It's so secure; it doesn't need anybody to secure it. Nobody to secure it, and apparently, all of this is going to be resolved by Erdogan and Putin, who, by the way, are meeting alone bilaterally, which again highlights just how irrelevant the EU is. So. Of course, all they can do is, you know, go to the border. And perhaps it's good for European citizens to see that at least, you know, this new crop of EU executives is uh, at least trying to do something and not waiting for a crisis to unfold. But also, let's not fall for both sides, you know, Turkish and Greek exaggerations. This is by no means near any kind of refugee influx or crisis as in 2015. The numbers are nowhere near that. We're barely talking about tens of thousands at this stage, barely. 
yeah, that's true. Not yet in any case. Um, a lot of it is clearly being, you know, stage managed um, for, you know, for different purposes on different sides. But one of the things, um, you know, that's been interesting to come out of this, Annabelle, there was really quite some strong symbolism uh, yesterday when the EU leaders were all up at the border, uh, the Greek-Turkish border, expressing solidarity with Greece. And then just around the same time, a press release drops from the UK Foreign Office with Dominic Raab expressing solidarity with Turkey. Um, how do you explain that? And how much is the UK kind of ploughing its own furrow here with Turkey? I think it was probably more coincidence than anything, but certainly it's pretty symbolic. He was on a pre-planned visit, wanting to talk about some great trade deal. He couldn't exactly start sort of taking the EU side while he was there. I mean, within that statement, he did um, express his support for the EU-Turkey deal on migration. So I don't think there's any sort of great sense that, that it's going to be the UK and Turkey versus the EU on this. And it's certainly, I think it's in it's in the UK's interest for the EU and Turkey to to sort this out. It's it's not something that's sort of got a huge amount of attention um, in the UK press. Yeah, and but the thing that does seem to be dominating the headlines, just to switch topics, I watched the the BBC News at ten last night. And I think it was about twenty minutes straight of coronavirus, and that seems to be the other uh, big big topic. And I just wanted to get a sense of each of you, you know, in your capitals. What's the mood? What's the feeling like around coronavirus? How much are you seeing the effects of coronavirus? And, you know, what is uh, each government or authority doing about it? Are they all on the same page? Uh, Reem, how is it in Paris? You know, it's been interesting because it seems quite uh, calm in Paris. And I saw a poll go by today that said that basically a majority, 75%, more or less, if I'm not mistaken, of the French are not really panicked about, you know, how this is going to go down. Uh, that being said, we did see Macron completely change his agenda on Monday to adjust it, uh, to focus it much more around managing the crisis of coronavirus, as as we were told by the Elysee, by his office. Um, and then we saw him go to the sort of center uh, for dealing with medical emergencies and, and uh, uh, you know, one to show people that, you know, they have a, a handle on things. They're also uh, taking over all the stocks of medical masks uh, in France. That also means, by the way, uh, these French companies not being able to deliver uh, these masks to their foreign international clients uh, because the government has taken them over. And they've taken them over uh, to make sure that there isn't speculation on the prices as we would have as we have seen in other countries and to make sure that only those who really need them aka those who already have coronavirus uh, have access to them people in the subway are definitely if you sneeze or if you cough people kind of look at you like whoa stay away uh, but uh, other than that you know it's pretty anecdotal at this stage Right. Well, we did uh, here in Brussels, I did see somebody on the metro with a mask on, which I did find uh, a bit unnerving because, uh, as you say, that's really only of any use if you have the coronavirus. And I thought if you have the coronavirus, you know, you shouldn't be on the metro. And if you don't have it, you don't need a mask. But, uh, there, you know, that's the, there is a bit of a sense, I think, of I wouldn't go so far as panic, but certainly nerves. And you can see that also within the EU institutions here in Brussels. The parliament cancelled about 100 events 
but some events went ahead and that in turn also prompted criticism because Greta Thunberg was here this week uh, for the unveiling of the new climate law proposed by the Commission. And then, of course, you had MEPs saying, hey, how come Greta Thunberg's coming to the Parliament, but all the other events have been cancelled? So there is a feeling and, uh, you know, we now have a couple of cases in the EU institutions. So there is this feeling of of mounting uh, unease, a little bit chaos might be going so too far, but it certainly feels like um, people are all kind of caught a bit off balance by this. And here, uh, there's there's a running question about whether the upcoming local elections, which are supposed to take place on the 15th of March and then on the 22nd of March, are they going to be postponed? Right. And I've heard there just seem to be different rules on gatherings, right? There's rules that, you know, certain over a certain number of people shouldn't be gathering in one place. A French minister was asked about this this morning on French radio because they cancelled all, all sorts of um, sort of events except for the football matches and she said the reason for that is because of the football matches it's open air um, and people aren't sort of spitting on each other which is or touching <laughs> each other that much which is how things would be transmitted she's never been to a scottish football <laughs> match i'll tell you that uh, matt what's the sense in berlin this is a big moment for for jens Spahn, the health minister yeah this that's right and you know he's sort of running as the junior candidate on this this uh, ticket with armin laschet to become the next uh, head of the of the CDU, and if if all goes well, it it, it should really improve prove his uh, stature. He's already kind of seen as a as a man of the future. But I think you know right now it's it's just too early to say. There is a lot of nervousness here. You you see that in in the tabloids, but also on the street. They have canceled some major events, not quite of the of the uh, kind of Greta category. Although I think many people would probably rather have coronavirus than upset uh, Greta. Uh, but they did cancel the Leipzig Book Fair and they uh, canceled a, um, a very large tourism fair in Berlin. And, and these are things that have real economic impact on, on the community. And they're, they're also now um, talking about whether they're going to have to cancel the Hanover Industry Fair, which is the largest industry fair in, in the world. Yeah, well, that brings us to Annabelle. How is, you know, what does Brexit mean for, for the coronavirus? What approach is the UK taking? And, and how does it feel in London at the moment? Are you seeing a lot of, you know, visible signs of, of the impact or, or at least the concerns about coronavirus? Well, there's always a Brexit angle to every story. Um, yeah, afraid so. In terms of the impact, um, everyone seems pretty calm, actually. I sneezed in an Uber the other night and he opened all the windows. That's about as <laughs> <laughs> That as panicked as anyone's got. <laughs> well, that's the most 21st century thing I can think of almost. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, other than that, it's pretty calm. But yeah, I guess when my co- our colleague Ashley asked um, the Prime Minister, he, um, he came out of hiding this week and held a COBRA meeting, which is um, the sort of emergency meeting. It's called COBRA because it's held in Cabinet Office Briefing Room A, which is, sounds very um, sort of cloak and dagger. But Ashley asked him about it at, at the press conference, and he was just very keen to emphasise global Britain. Um, so he's he's using it as an opportunity. And I guess unless there's proof that people are suffering because we're not part of the sort of European conversation, it will probably be a peripheral peripheral issue. Remainers will probably complain about it. Um, Brexiteers will probably say, "Fantastic! Look, we don't need the European Union. We can deal with this globally." Okay, let's move on across the Atlantic uh, briefly. Matt, you wanted to mention Super Tuesday, uh, the you know latest in the round of uh, democratic primaries. Uh, it looks like the field is uh, thinning out pretty rapidly there. 
Is there anything we can say about what it means for, for Europe at this stage? Well, I just thought it was interesting this morning and throughout the day to talk to people here in Berlin who, you know, have kind of renewed hope that the United States is is not uh, completely lost uh, to, to Europe. There's been, you know, almost a kind of gallows kind of humor going on about the the upcoming election in the United States. And with Biden, Biden is somebody that Europeans know well, Germans in particular. Um, he's been a real standard bearer of, of the transatlantic alliance for a long time. I, but w- one just has to wonder if, if they're getting a bit ahead of themselves um, after after his uh, string of wins over the over the last uh, several hours. Pretty much interest in, in France. Is it getting much coverage? And, you know, are people you talk to in political circles following it closely, rooting for Biden? Super Tuesday definitely uh, was was very much covered. Um, you know, all the French big media have correspondents in the US right now that were sent especially to cover Super Tuesday. And, you know, there yes, there's a familiarity with Biden. Uh, that being said, among officials, and it's very interesting because you hear it from the president um, onward, you know, Emmanuel Macron has been one of the uh, people for the past few years who has said, you know, he doesn't consider Trump to be an exception or an aberration. He considers him to be, you know, part of the American uh, political landscape. He doesn't think that regardless whoever wins uh, in November in the US, uh, he doesn't, he's not one of those who thinks, oh, great, it's going to be sort of the return to whatever normal means, aka before the Trump administration. Uh, Because, you know, people around uh, Emmanuel Macron, but also Macron has said this publicly, uh, they consider that the Obama administration had also started its own kind of retreat from the world in its own way. I mean, certainly it wasn't as brash and harsh um, and kind of in your face as as Trump is. But um, in general, they don't think that it's going to go back to normal. Right. And if if not a retreat from the world, then obviously, you know, very much advertised uh, under the Obama administration as a pivot to Asia. So that idea that America is just going to be less focused on Europe and and people need to get used to that. Uh, But Annabelle, what's been the reaction in the UK? Because the UK follows American politics, certainly in the kind of political circles, incredibly closely, I think. I mean, you know, generally people know a lot more about American politics than they do about European politics. Yeah, absolutely. UK politics people love uh, U.S. politics, and they all think they're experts. Um, which or, think, or at least extras in the in the West Wing, or uh, yeah, you know, exactly. Well, we all love our love our American um, Netflix dramas, but um, UK politics Twitter was awash this morning. Um, I particularly enjoyed um, Arch Remainer and Blairite Cabinet Minister Andrew Adonis. Um, his conclusion this morning was that I think the Democrats may have just won the presidential election. Talk about Old. getting ahead of yourself. Old. Yeah. Okay. I think we better uh, leave it there. Uh, Matt, Reem, Annabelle, thanks very much. Thank you. Thanks. That was our podcast panel coming to you from Brussels, Berlin, Paris, and London. Before we get to our feature interview this week with Syrian doctor Amani Balour, we have a quick message from this week's sponsor. A message from Goldman Sachs. Goldman Sachs believes that when women lead, everything changes. Because in today's world, gender equality is an economic imperative, so supporting women's economic empowerment means supporting growth. At Goldman Sachs, commitment to female empowerment spans four critical areas. Philanthropic, commercial, academic, and cultural. The philanthropic pillar focuses on communities by empowering women entrepreneurs worldwide through the 10,000 Women Program. 
The commercial pillar is driven by an investing strategy centered on diverse-led startups, anchored by initiatives like Launch with GS. The academic pillar focuses on the firm's Global Markets Institute and its groundbreaking work analyzing gender gap trends. And the cultural pillar focuses on Goldman Sachs' own people by making diversity and inclusivity a mandate across the firm. Learn more at www.gs.com slash winwomenlead. And now let's talk more about Syria, but from a different perspective. Our producer, Christina Gonzalez, met Syrian paediatrician Dr. Amani Balour during a recent visit to Brussels. Balour spent six years working in a secret underground hospital in eastern Ghouta, Syria. The hospital is now known internationally as The Cave, after a National Geographic documentary about Balour and the hospital was nominated for an Oscar. Balour was in Brussels to meet with EU foreign policy chief Joseph Borrell and members of the European Parliament to appeal for their help for the victims of the conflict in her home country. I'm Amani Balour, a Syrian female doctor. Uh, I was studying medicine uh, for six years and I graduated in 2012 uh, when the uh, revolution, Syrian revolution started. Uh, I wanted to help people. I wanted to be a pediatrician, but I couldn't complete studying because uh, of the revolution and because of Assad regime started to kill people, to besiege them, to bomb them. I saw these innocent people, the women and children are being killed and they need help. A lot of doctors decide to flee. And that's why I wanted to stay to help these people because they need help and I'm a doctor and I can help them. And you ended up volunteering in what now is known as the cave, right? Which is this underground hospital, 65 feet underground. Can you tell us a bit about the experience for people who may not have seen the documentary? Just to give us a sense of what that was like, what that experience was like. Uh, it was very, it was very difficult. It was very bad period of the time under bombing, under siege. We have nothing. We were few doctors, and we don't have. Uh, we have some medicine, some medical supplies, and uh, we were hungry. We were afraid uh, under bombing all the time. The war bands and the sky all the time. They use all the types of weapons to kill people. And uh, as a doctor to work underground hospital, it was dark. It wasn't wasn't healthy. It, do, it doesn't it didn't supposed to be underground. But because they bombed the hospital, uh, all the hospital and destroyed it, we were forced to work underground. And that was very difficult. And to me, especially because I was working as pediatrician and I didn't have a long experience to to work as pediatrician. But I forced to see every day about three or forty child because there were few pediatricians in Alhuta and uh, I have to do that, I had to do that. And uh, every day I saw these children, they were afraid, they were all the time saying, we are afraid, we are hungry, and I can, I, can, I can do nothing for them. It was very, very difficult. And to see all the world are watching, we are in 21st century, and we, we, have, we had hope that someone will help us, the international community will end the siege, stop bombing, stop killing the children, or do something, evacuate the children, the patients, but they do nothing, they're still watching, and they, they're still watching now. That makes us very frustrated, and uh, yeah, it was very difficult circumstances. When it comes to medical supplies, you just mentioned that. How, how does that happen um, in terms of 
receiving medical supplies. Were you um, in contact with the UN, for example, as to where you were located? How does that communication work to the outside world? Yeah, at the beginning of the siege, you know, Assad regime and Russia bombed some hospital and destroyed it. We take, we took this uh, medical equipment and some medicine and start working. After about a year or, or two years, we, we had nothing and some people died because of lack of medicine. But after that, we made a channels underground to, to smuggle some medicine and some medical supplies. Some uh, medical organization out of Syria uh, support us, send money, and we, we pay very high prices to the moderators to buy some medicine and medical supplies. Of course, we couldn't, pay, uh, we couldn't uh, uh, buy everything, just what they allow us to buy. We, were, uh, we, we didn't have a lot of things. For example, the cancer patients, they need uh, chemical therapy, and a lot of them died because we don't have, we didn't have... Yeah, what which we have, we, we work in, but it was very difficult to get it. The UN, I remember for about six years, they entered Al-Ghuta two, twice or three times, and they brought very few medicine and food for children. And they made big problem because thousands of children, they need food, and they brought just some food. And, you know, it's very difficult to choose who you and give this food for. It was very difficult for us. But I, I think the UN and all the people, everyone, um, they, they let us down. Does that include the EU and the European Union countries in Europe? Yeah, I, I, yeah, all the people, all the countries who can help the international community. Because they were watching. They, they saw the chemical attack in 2013, where they killed about uh, more than 1,000 people. Were killed in one night. They were suffocated by, by sarin gas. And all the people watch that, watch the photos and the videos, and they do nothing for us. After that, we were very hopeful that all the people will help us now because it's very big crime to, to happen, to kill more than 1,000 people. Most of them were children, and they were sleeping. It was at midnight. All the people were sleeping, and they, they bomb us with sarin gas. It's... It's a very brutal way to, to kill the people. And we were watching the people were suffocating in front of us. And all people around the world know that. They know that, they saw that, but they do nothing for us. In 2016, you took over as the manager of the underground hospital. And as best as I understand it, that was also a bit controversial, being a female doctor who was running um, such an important hospital can you just tell us a bit about that reaction? Yes, I was working in this hospital for about three or four years before becoming a manager. And I know everything in this hospital. I know what we, we need. I have a plan to develop the hospital, to expand it. And I wanted to be a manager to the hospital. And my colleagues vote to me and support me to be a manager. But my community and the main in my community especially, they said, no, you can't because you are woman. This is a very uh, long culture, traditions in our community about women that uh, you you have to stay at home, you you have to get married and have children, this is everything. Or they say to me, you can be a pediatrician in your clinic or a doctor for women, but not to be a manager of the hospital. It's not your position. It's for men. And a lot of people, a lot of men, when they come to the hospital, they say, when they ask about the manager and tell me, they say, don't you have men to talk with? 
they said that because yeah this is the, the culture in our community and I really wanted to, to change this culture because I believe no difference between men and women I was working as a doctor with my colleagues uh, in the same circumstances we were together under bombing in the same hospital so I can do as they can do uh, that's why I wanted to be a manager and to try to change this image about women to approve that women can do more Do you think that's worked? Do you think that you have changed things for women? Yes, uh, yes, I did. Because uh, uh, at the last time before uh, displacement, some men came to me and the, the hospital was succeeded and the acid regime and rush upon the hospitals around us, they destroyed it. But they couldn't destroy my hospital, the cave, because we protect it very well and make the tunnels. And some men came to me and said, uh, you were right and you, you could do a great job. And I was very happy because we could change them. They have very long culture and they are very extreme, but we, we could change them. This is very important to know that there's not, nothing impossible to change. We can change everything. In 2018, you made the tough choice to leave. Yeah. Can you talk about the decision to leave and then your journey, as best as I understand it, was to Idlib and then to Turkey? Can you tell yeah. us a bit about that decision and your journey? Yes, we wanted to stay, of course. We didn't want to leave and it wasn't our choice to leave. You know, Assad regime in Russia and Iran started a very brutal campaign against Al Ghota in March 2018, and they started to, to bomb every second. And they used all the kinds of weapons. They used the chemical, all the kinds of weapons. They destroyed the hospital. They destroyed about 10 hospitals last time. So we don't have, we didn't have a choice. And then we all the civilians stay in just two small villages. After that, some negotiation between the, the Russian leader and the people there and the Russian leader said to, to them you you should live in the buses we can bring you buses to live or we will kill all of you they don't care they killed a lot and we know they, they can kill us so we said yes we will leave and it wasn't our choice to stay uh, yeah we we live to the Idlib and in Idlib the same scenario the same thing they bomb everything in Idlib and still now they they do everything now what you saw in the movie and what happened in Ghouta is not something from the past it's still happening now people are being killed, are being bombed people are dying in the camps now are dying because of coldness so this is still happening I'm curious in Idlib some say that this is a focal point of jihadists How does that strike you? Yeah, there are some some groups of uh, extremes groups in in Idlib, but that that don't uh, justify to kill all the civilians. There there were millions of civilians, and they are suffering because of these people and because of bombing, because of Assad regime and Russia and uh, Iran. So these people need help because they are humans, and I think I believe that international community uh, is their responsibility to help them. To protect them, protect them from everything. There are now uh, millions of them are in the camps now, and there's no jihadists in the camps. And they don't help them. They are just watching them dying. Do you think that Europe will step up now, given the news coverage of the last couple of days and weeks? I have a hope. There's still, still uh, have a hope because people are dying now and they, they need help. It's nine years. It started for nine years, but uh, we, we still need help. And that's why I'm here in Europe. I'm trying to meet uh, politicians, to meet people who can help us, try to tell them about the situation, about the humanitarian needs, try to, to make pressure, tell them the stories, what I see in Syria. I hope they can help me. 
That was Dr. Amani Balur in conversation with our producer, Christina Gonzalez. And that's all we have time for on this episode of EU Confidential. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. And please rate us by clicking some stars or leaving a review. I know some of you probably tune out at this bit because I say it every week, but we really do enjoy hearing your feedback. Drop us a line with ideas for topics, guests or anything else at podcast at politico.eu. I'm Andrew Gray in Brussels. Thanks to our producer, Christina Gonzalez. And thanks to you for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.